Hello and welcome to Green Minds, the student-led podcast dedicated to thought-provoking conversations on climate change and sustainability. I'm your host, Lorenzo, and today we have a very special episode, not only because we have a great guest interviewee for you all, but also because we have our first guest co-host of the year. So I'm delighted to welcome Q to the podcast. Q is a fellow student studying the MSc in Climate Change Management and Finance at Imperial College Business School. Q, it's really great to have you uh, as a co-host. A very warm welcome to the Green Minds family. Would you like to give listeners a short introduction about yourself? Hi, everyone. Thank you, Lorenzo, for having me. It's very exciting to be here. So as you mentioned, we're both students in the CCMF program here at Imperial. Like several of our colleagues, I started out as an engineer where I was responsible for the maintenance of gas turbines and offshore gas platform in Malaysia. And after a couple of years, I was curious about climate change and what the company was doing about it. So I transitioned internally to a data analyst role and looked into the entire company's carbon footprint and the various emission reduction projects underway. And finally, in the last couple of years, my role expanded to look into sustainability disclosures working on producing reports aligned with TCFD, GRI, and most recently the ISSB. And all of these experiences have made me understand the importance of mobilizing finance in restoring ecosystems while tackling societal issues to address climate change. And so here I am at CCMF. Fantastic. It's always great to learn about the interesting and varied careers that people have had even relatively early on in their career journeys. It's really fascinating to hear. Um, so yeah, as, as you know, Q, uh, we, we've just interviewed Win Sim Tan, and in a moment we're going to uh, give listeners a bit more information about Win and uh, his career so far. And he's someone who you secured as a guest for the podcast, and thank you very much for doing so. I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about how you met Win and also what your motivations were for wanting him to come on the podcast. Yeah, very happy to. I actually found Wynn on LinkedIn when I was doing research, applying for my master's, and he was very helpful in answering all of my questions. And later on, I was looking for guest speakers when I organised the Malaysia Local Conference of Youth, which congregates young climate activists, and I thought of him. And thankfully, he agreed, and he was a fantastic speaker, and we've continued to stay in touch since. And I feel like he would be a great guest to have on a podcast just because of his wealth of experience as well as like the tips that he gave me I felt were very beneficial for our colleagues as well. Brilliant and uh, I think that sets up the interview and the episode very nicely and listeners will hear that Win is very insightful, he has uh, strong opinions backed up by his experience and he's also got a great sense of humour so hopefully you can all have uh, a good laugh whilst listening on your commutes or uh, during your dinners or however you're listening to the podcast. So without further ado, here is our interview with Win Sim Tan. We're delighted to welcome Win Sim Tan to the podcast, or Win as he likes to be known. So Win has to date had an incredibly varied career working in areas such as wildlife conservation, climate scenario modelling and voluntary carbon markets. And his journey to date has involved projects in his home country of Malaysia, as well as the United States, Canada and Scotland. And over the course of this interview, we're going to go into depth on some of the key moments in Wynn's career and also cover tips he has for listeners thinking about their next steps in their careers in climate and sustainability. So Wynn, it's fantastic to have you on as a guest and thanks very much for offering some of your time today. 
thanks for having me today. I'm definitely delighted to be here to share some of uh, my experience and knowledge with you guys. Thank you, Vin. So let's get started. Your early career was in wildlife conservation, including searching and bending sea ducks in Nunavut, Canada, and participating in Malaysia's first national tiger survey. You've also written some touching articles on your connection with nature. And one that really stood out for me was an article you wrote about a local songbird, the white rumshama, or murai batu, and the danger posed to it by widespread poaching. So I'm really curious to know, what were the influences in your childhood and early life that connected you with nature and made you want to pursue a career in conservation? Thanks for the questions, Q. So I won't give you answers where you have heard many times, like inspired by National Geography or BBC's or David Attenborough's documentary. It will be more like uh, it's, I was driven by my passions at that time, first I should say I was rather naive. So I wanted to collect stories. When my first academic advisor in the University of Wisconsin told me that I need to take another semester of physics, which I think is uh, one of the science branches that don't quite make sense because you need to make too many unrealistic assumptions. So she told me I have a few options. You can study plants, which I think is rather dull because they're just there, they don't move. And then I can choose wildlife ecology. So I thought about it, why not? Let's try that then. So in my first summer, in the States, I went to California and start uh, tracking and looking for night hours in the middle of night where there's, there were black bears and mountain lions in the landscape. In my second summer, then I went to Canada. So that was real isolations and wilderness because the closest town, I think, was up a hundred miles away and there's no way of getting there by roads. You will have to take boats, trekking many days. You actually have to take a plane to get there, a biplanes. So it's really isolated. But that's, that's, those are the landscape where I get to collect a lot of interesting stories. I have uh, close encounters with uh, black bears, grizzly bears, not polar bears though, because not quite close to the North Pole. And my, my close encounters was quite uh, interesting because when I saw them, it's not one, it was three of them, a mama bear with two cubs. And when they saw us, me and my colleague, they ran towards us and we were freaking out. Wow, no, not we, it's just me who was freaking out. So I was looking for bear bangers and pepper spray. And my friend was just saying, hey, where's your camera? Let's take some photos. So they didn't stop until like so 100 meters away and the mama bear stood up on his hind legs and took a few steps, ran the other way and they were gone. So those are the, really some of the interesting stories that I've collected. That was the passion that drove me to go into wildlife conservations. When I graduated, then I went back to Malaysia, which is my hometown. And I wanted to study birds, but Sadly, there's no bird-related works, so I end up in the tiger conservations. So that's how the whole story is from degree, then go into uh, graduations and into real-world conservations in uh, Malaysia. Oh, wow. I can really relate to that, especially the part about black bears, because I remember when you were 
touring national parks in the US, you would always have massive traffic jams because you have the cars, just like everyone stopping, wanting to take the photos of the bears. So that's <laughs> something that I think everyone would have done the opposite, just like whipping out cameras. And that's always the romantic part about it. Yeah. Um, and so do you think, especially with recent years, um, the growing influence of social media, um, especially during COVID when everyone had to stay at home, that our connection with nature has weakened? And how do you think that has affected the way we see environmental problems? That's an interesting question uh, again, because the COVID, in my opinion, make it glaring that our connections with nature is weakened. Even before that, the connections has already non-existence. And that was also the moment when I told myself I need to get out of conservations because conservations was tough at that time. Funding was difficult. My supervisors have to write one grant to another, still surviving on grants. But there's that there's one particular issue is that the grant, because it's donor based, you have to deliver uh, the objective before they give you more money. So it's milestone as well. There's one big restrictions where 50% of it, you can't spend it on your staff costs. So if you think about getting a comfortable, sustainable life in uh, conservations, not quite possible at that time. So that that's when I think I, I thought to myself, I need a way out. And I, I got out before the pandemic and pandemic hits, everything came to the halt, and even the funding. And I noticed that many of my colleagues, previous colleagues, actually quit. And so that was tough time for conservations. And then I don't think it has recovered quite yet. Again, it's back to the funding issues. And with this kind of slump in conservation, how has this influenced your personal outlook? Did it make you feel powerless or did it make you want to do more? Taught myself, we need to tackle this in the different angles. All right, we talk about the cute tigers, the cute uh, macaques in the forest, but people in the cities are so far away. There's a road queue somewhere in the West Coast, but do people really care about it? There's some distance that, all right, just another that road queue, that's about it. So that's when I say to myself, Let's try the climate change angle as well. We need to protect our forest and to address climate change. We need to stop cutting down trees because these are the, our best carbon sink. But at the same time, by doing that, we can still protect our biodiversity. So it's windmill killing two birds in one stone. So that's, and it's easier to relate to climate change, especially in Malaysia. We talk about the annual recurring floods in December or early of the year. That's something that actually, <laughs> I believe, burned into uh, people's memory, if, especially if they live in a flood prone area or near rivers. So those, those are nightmares that people can relate to and they will want to act to address it. So when you tell them, okay, we need to protect this forest because it's stored water, it prevents worse flood, people bite it. And at the same time, you protect biodiversity. So that's a good angle that I see we can make it work. We can make people and convince people to take actions rather than telling them, okay, this animal is endangered, we need to do something. But what can they do? Not much. 
when you've, you've talked about uh, some of your some of your motivations for making the the shift from focusing on biodiversity to working on climate change and uh, you mentioned for example that the win-win nature of climate change in terms of positive outcomes leading to positive outcomes for biodiversity as well so you, you shifted from your exciting encounters with bears to focusing on climate change scenario modeling by starting a job at the Malaysian Green Technology and Climate Change Corporation, or MGTC, which I understand is uh, an agency of Malaysia's Ministry of Natural Resources, Environment and Climate Change. Um, before I ask you about how you achieved this career pivot, just to give the audience some context, could you briefly talk us through your work at the MGTC, in particular your role in developing uh, that climate scenario model known as the Malaysia Climate Action Simulator? Sure, Lorenzo. So MGTC is quite a, is in a unique position to assist the government. And it does so by focusing on more on the mitigations part of the climate change. Especially uh, we MGTC has programs, for example, the low carbon cities. So there's a whole list of initiative, green initiative to assist city in decarbonizing and they get ranked and get awarded annually. So that's a motivation to encourage the cities to go green. At the same time, there are different divisions, if I can put it that way. There's the innovations that look into um, electric vehicles adoptions. There's another divisions look into water management, for my role in MGTCs, we are assisting with the agencies in looking into more of the greenhouse gas accounting. That's where the nature's climate action simulators came into the pictures, where it was actually a model based on the McCain model for the UK. And we actually adopt that same tools and then try to change that to the local context, local as in Malaysia's. And I was looking into the uh, forestry, agriculture, or, or also known as AFOLU, uh, agriculture, forestry, and other land use. So the main difference is between UK and Malaysia is we have a lot of oil palms. And for UK, not none at all. Even. So that's something we need to tweak the models to take into account. What happens if, for example, we increase forest cover or increase oil palms plantations then we have to take up and look at what impact will bring to our emissions to other land uses. So those are the, some trade-offs we uh, have to take into account when we build this uh, MCAS simulator. So it, it took probably a year, and that was during the pandemic. So it's not easy. So we're still trying to adopt to the new norms, if I can put it that way. So working online having calls over every day, and definitely a tough work to do modeling over calls. Two, three hours trying to figure out what went wrong in the Excel shit. No, that's not easy. Really interesting. And uh, it sounds from what you're saying as though there, there, were, there were definitely some parallels between what you, what you were doing before in wildlife conservation and what you were doing um, at the agency. So you talked about how there was a big Afalu agriculture, forestry and land use uh, focus, which you must have drawn from your previous experience uh, to, to help you in that role. Uh, but it also sounds like they're, they're very different roles. You know, one to me sounds like the wildlife research role is very much 
hands on, uh, you know, you're you're on the ground, you know, actually you know, up close and personal with the animals. Whereas the job at the agency is is seems to be very much more desk based, simulator generating, scenario modeling work. What were the most challenging differences that that you experienced between uh, those roles, and, and how did you how did you adjust to transitioning from from one to the other? Interesting that you mentioned that the role in conservation is um, field related. That's probably to fifty percent. Like you spend fifty percent in in the field, so in the forest, but the remaining fifty percent you probably spend in the desk because all the data you collected. It has to be analyzed, and my role at that time was do, to do a lot of analysis. And one of the major difference, I won't call, I won't say it's a challenge, but it's a major difference is that uh, in conservations, the science was quite hard, can be quite hardcore. We were using um, Bayesian analysis, so if you're familiar with Monte Carlo simulations, which can take a day or two sometimes to complete one round of analysis. That's that's something quite hardcore compared to what I did with the MCAS. That was Excel based. And Excel, if you've uh, statisticians, you know that Excel is not designed to become a statistical tool. You can do analysis, but it's not the best. It's slow. We will make changes. It's not easy to track. But in the same, it's, it's a dumb down version of the analysis I was doing previously. And it's not that much different. It's just making sense of the numbers and then make sure that the numbers adds up and make sense at the end of the day that give you correct uh, outputs. And for context, when a lot of students on, on the program that Q and I are currently on, they're doing the program because they want to achieve a pivot in their career. So some of our peers are doing non-climate focused professions and want to pivot to climate focused ones, or some even are looking at an element of climate change or sustainability and want to maybe change into a different angle. So for example, moving from being an ESG analyst to a climate finance specialist. So your career pivot will be particularly interesting to listeners. And it's also interesting to hear that you made that change during the pandemic. I was wondering if you could share any lessons or tips you think that uh, students looking to make a similar career change could could take on board when uh, when looking into making their transition. One of the major lessons that I learned during my conservation year is that uh, you don't want to be seen uh, to be into a very niche role because when you are in a niche role, you can't get out of it so easily. So what I did was to pursue a master, but that ma the master that I pursued was very generic. So it's called environmental protections and management. So what exactly about it can be water management, it can be climate change, it can be soil management. So it's very, very generic and vague. And it depends on what are these elective or the courses that I took in that master's. At the same time, I have an ace up my sleeve. So that, that ace up my sleeve was my master dissertations. So I want to have something that make myself stand up amongst the candidates if I had to go to, into an a interview. So for my master dissertation, I purposely chose something that I'm familiar with, but there's also room to expand. 
So I was looking at satellite images, looking at forest cover change, and then how that can be used to make inferences on carbon stocks. You see now from race, remote sensing, forest cover, then there's a little bit of pivots toward climate change that you can argue for. So two main key messages is one, try not to go get very niche titles or niche courses that you're studying. Then the second one would be have an ace up your sleeve. And if you are studying dissertation, that's something you can make use of and give you an edge over the job that you want to get. Well, thanks for sharing that. I think if I had known that during my master's research, which we did speak about and I did consult you during that process, it may or may not have changed my decision, but that's that's a conversation for a separate time. So um, next up, Win. after your stint in MGTC, you had a very exciting role in setting up Malaysia's first voluntary carbon market exchange, officially known as the Bursa Carbon Exchange or BCX, which was officially launched in December 2022. So could you share with us what that process was like, how long it took, and what were the significant ups and downs? I must say that the my one and a half year with BCX was the, one of the most intense years I, I have over my career. Simply because of the deliverables that we need to uh, deliver at that time, it was such a tight timeline. So I joined in May. By December, we need to launch the exchange. And how do you launch an exchange? Especially a carbon exchange. Nobody actually knows. We do have a blueprint, which we developed together with a consultant, but a lot of the implementation is trial and errors for us. And I was the second uh, full-time staff who joined the team. And there are nights that I work until 11 o'clock. And then next day I have to get up by seven and go back to work again. And I recall that the first month with BCX, the first eight hours, when I went to office, it just meetings nonstop. After six o'clock, then I start my real work, my desk work. If there's any paperwork and administrative work, that's when I had time to do it. So that was intense. The situation did improve until like three, four months after I joined, where there were more uh, staff on board to assist us. And I was involved pretty much in everything, looking at the rules looking at the uh, technology platforms and looking at the carbon credits itself. At the same time, capacity building, that was insane because um, the announcement of a VCM exchange for Malaysia, that was exciting news for everyone. People want to know how can they get into this uh, business, these carbon credits. So we have calls almost every day, inquiries from emails from our Phones or close contacts everywhere. Everyone wants to talk. And of course, ecosystems players that we need to speak with. We have to speak with the supplier. We have to speak with the buyer and try to match them and understand what actually they need. So that wasn't easy. We launched it in uh, December 2022. Then, then after, after three months of that, we have our first options and 
after four months after that, that was in July, I think we have our trading platform officially launched. So yes, that was intense, but I must say it's really rewarding in terms of the uh, knowledge I gained. It's really a crash course over the carbon credits, over the Article 6 of the Paris Agreement. Yes, that is basically just a bit crazy, but absolutely rewarding. Well, yeah, I can't, I can't imagine. I definitely remember during those times, even where I was working, we were just talking about it constantly and being in the situation, I'm sure it was a lot more excruciating for you. But to add on to that, I'm very curious because we heard that when BCX launched its uh, inaugural auction, Malaysia didn't have sufficient verified carbon credit projects and had to adopt carbon credits from overseas. And so do you think that this movement has spurred more development of carbon credit projects locally or even within Southeast Asia? That is a neat question because we actually got bashed by several people online for auctioning credits overseas. And the thought that why BCX support overseas uh, projects instead of local projects, they're bashers for not supporting local projects. But at that time, what they didn't realize that while there are projects in Malaysia registered with, for example, with Veras and, and Gold Standard, but very, very few of them are actually uh, active. And at that time, none of them actually have any credits ready to sell. So when we speak with the buyers, they ask us, what's the price? How much are you selling? Then we went back to the suppliers, potential suppliers, we tell them, hey, there are people who want to buy. They ask us the game. So what's the price they're willing to pay? That's why we have that auctions uh, as a price signal, a positive signal to the market that if you have, for example, a nature-based project, this is probably how much you can get per credit. So that was our intention at that time. And right after that auctions, it, it led to a flurry of activities. More people got on board to ask us about the details. I think there were even developers from overseas who approached us and who are interested to list their projects with us and even have projects in Malaysia. They want to go, come to Malaysia to develop projects. At the same time, our local participants, they want to know how can they have a projects? And their conundrum is, how do you develop projects? So we see a switch from the earlier uh, excitement about oh, what is this voluntary carbon market? What are carbon credits? Now the questions change. How do I develop a project? Is my forest eligible for carbon crediting? So that's a quite exciting switch um, after the auctions in March last year. And to add to the situation, I think another one of the hot topics was that a lot of people were asking whether these carbon credits generated from local projects in Malaysia could be sold to buyers outside of the country for which you had lobbied for there to be no restrictions. Yet at the same time, Nick Nasmi had also mentioned that these carbon credits are not authorized to meet the NDCs of other countries. So how does this work, especially if corporate buyers are using it to fulfill their own climate commitments when they are located abroad? So this is, we have to talk about the accounting, uh, so this can get very technical, but the gist is um, 
when we look at the carbon market traditionally in the past, it's always been voluntary. It's, by, it's bought by uh, companies and then used by the company to offset their emissions. And when they do so, it doesn't get reported by the countries or get reported in the NDCs. Therefore, there's no issues of double counting because country do not go and ask all companies like what's your emission and then add them up. That country use a top-down approach. All right. So it's quite different accounting there. There's no issues of double counting. The second part of this question is that why this credit should be sold from to buyers outside of the country is because um, common but differentiated responsibility. If we recall that Malaysians is still developing, and if you look at our emissions per capita, it's quite small. Now, people might argue that, okay, Malaysia's emissions is small, but we still need to do our, uh, our part. But the general idea is that if Malaysia were, was to decarbonize, it should be supported not by local companies or local stakeholders. It should be supported by developed countries as well. It shouldn't be our responsibility alone to pursue decarbonizations. While if you look at many of the developed countries, their emissions per capita is doubled over of Malaysia's. So how is that fair if they are enjoying the fruits of development while us in the developing countries cannot enjoy the same? And we are asked to pay for the price, the cost to decarbonize ourselves. That doesn't sound fair under the Paris Agreement, does it? So that's why there's this uh, conundrum uh, that people think is the issues, this hot topic. At the same time, the carbon market is thrift, is moving to a different directions. Previously, it's voluntary. Now we're seeing voluntary converge with the compliance market. That's it's quite obvious when we look at uh, our neighbor in Singapore, where local corporates, corporates in Singapore who have tax, carbon tax obligations, they can actually buy 5% um, of carbon credits to offset their tax obligations. And those credits has to be corresponding adjusted, meaning if they buy from Malaysia, those credits have to be deducted from Malaysia's uh, inventory. And then Singapore can claim it. So we're seeing this convergence of voluntary and compliance. And that is likely the directions where the overall markets will move towards. It will no longer be voluntary. But when a credit gets exported, if it's used by another country, it needs to be deducted. This is in line with the Article 6 of the Paris Agreement. And so I guess what you just mentioned is especially the Article 6 portion, that's the part that they're still figuring out um, to make things a bit more transparent and clearer and allow for mitigation efforts to be done in a very fair manner. Yes, in terms of accounting, that has to happen for the whole accounting globally to make sense. Otherwise, the reportings by the countries will not be accurate if you don't correspond adjust for it. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. And so since we're talking about mitigation, um, what do you think could be done to further encourage carbon removal projects, especially given that Southeast Asia is such a biodiversity hotspot? How do we 
get to that win-win situation that you were discussing with Lorenzo earlier? Now, this is a topic that the industry is trying to address at the moment. At the current moment, what South Asia is facing is the lack of talents. That's one. And then there's the gap in knowledge. So to develop projects, South Asia has to, at the moment, get help from overseas. And when you need to get help from overseas, it's not cheap compared if you can get a local consultant to assist you. So what we're noticing, and especially in Singapore, the university in Singapore have already started courses or uh, education sessions related to project developments, carbon credits, even to high level uh, carbon policies at the Paris Agreement level. So that is uh, quite a swift step by the Singapore. But if you look at other Southeast Asian countries, they are lagging behind, still need more works. At the same time, even within the regions, there's the hot competitions for talents. So people are getting poached left and right to move to other corporates to assist with project developments or even the MRV, the measurement reporting and verifications, not just for projects, but for carbon tax as well, especially since we have this uh, cross-border adjustment mechanisms coming from the European Union, the CBAM. So there's a flurry of uh, development that requires people, manpowers to do it. And to solve this bottleneck, we need to have more talents and we need to have our local institutions, educational institutions, to revamp their course or offer courses that are needed by the industry, driven by the industry needs. And that will probably take another few more years before we see that uh, markets have more talents to choose from. So yes, we have to address these talent issues in South Asia to be able to move forward with more projects. Thanks for bringing that. It's very reassuring for someone in the CCMF program to hear that because it means that there will be job opportunities and we know where to look for them. And, and pivoting onto job opportunities for the last section of the, of the podcast, win. So you've already given some really useful tips uh, for listeners, for students on the, on the climate change management and finance program. A lot of us in the cohort are really interested in, in jobs in climate finance. So impact investing is an example or sustainable consultancy. And we get all sorts of speakers from all different types of industries, different organizations, different countries coming to speak to us. Um, but there are also a lot of students who have a real interest in pursuing a career focusing on biodiversity, whether that be from a research carbon markets or consultancy angle. But there's not really that same level of exposure, I think, that we get in terms of the guest speakers that we listen to. And I think coverage in the in the course itself. So I was wondering if you have any recommendations for people who were interested in this area in biodiversity. Where should, how should they go about seeking out opportunities? And in what fields of biodiversity do you think that students can maximize their impact and also their career trajectories? That is a tough question to begin because biodiversity and it is is such a broad field, as we explained earlier, it can be research, it can be the markets, it can be the consultancies. So the 
first thing I would recommend is take look into what are the transferable skills from others markets or others job fields you can transfer into the specific areas in biodiversities you want to get into. For example, if you are looking into biodiversity credits, you want, you want to be familiar with the process of developing a project. Yeah, preparing the project design document is one thing. Then you have to think about the feasibility. How do you calculate whether or not your projects can make is a viable, commercially viable project? So that's another skill that you need. But if you, you know it from the carbon market, you can easily apply it in the biodiversity credit field. If you're looking to consultancy, then obviously it's the PowerPoint. <laughs> you have to be great <laughs> to make pretty slides at the same time, critical thinking. So that is something also very difficult. And now I, I don't want to speculate, but looking at the momentum that we have right now, so we have sustainability very, very hot in the market for the past few years, still quite hot in the Southeast Asia region. The next thing is carbon markets, you know, carbon accounting, not just carbon markets, sorry. It can be the carbon market, it can be for the greenhouse gas disclosure. So you scope one, scope two, scope three. And there's also the rating agencies, which is quite new in the market that you can look into. But the next big thing could be biodiversity's um, frameworks, the credits that the Kuming and Montreal frameworks is pushing hard for. We have seen many international organizations have in place a framework methodologies to develop a biodiversity credits project. And I think quite a few has been piloted when those pilot project completes, the first phase is pilot phase. Uh, pilot phase is, is done. We look into implementations and where do the talent come from? So obviously you have the pool from the conservations. These guys know the, the animals well. These are how, how to measure the, uh, the outcomes, the parameter, parameters easily. At the same time, it will draw from, for example, carbon market. It will draw from the auditing because uh, you do need people to audit them. So it's not an easy question to answer because it depends on which specific area you're looking into in biodiversity. But what I think might be hard for the coming few years is definitely the biodiversity credits. I think that's great because I feel like your answer is giving students a lot of potential starting points that they can work from and, and hopefully is allowing listeners to realize that they do have certain skills that are very much transferable to, to go into this field. Interesting what you say about uh, the opportunities that international biodiversity frameworks could create as well. And very timely what you say about the importance of uh, use of PowerPoint for consulting, given I think at this moment in time, CCMF students are currently working on three different sets of PowerPoint slides for different group assignments. Um, I was wondering if we could take it up a level really quickly and uh, hear any general tips that you have for the overall student cohort who are looking to make the next steps in their career. All oh, that came to my mind. So if you want to go into consultancy, you want to do it early because this is really a young people's game. The turnover rate is high. 
because it's very demanding. And as your priority switch, when you get mature, if I can put it that way, you might not be able to spend that many hours working on consultancy. So, but you do have an advantage because Imperial College London, that's a school that the consultants firm would want to take. So that's an advantage. But do think about the, the age and your commitments. That's the first one. Second one, this is a conundrum that I actually face. You want to think twice before committing to pursue a PhD because of the potential opportunity cost. If you think about PhD, it will take easily four to five years. And the job market, when they look at a master's students with five years of experience versus a fresh PhD grads, most likely the job market will prefer master's students. Because master student has work experience, know how to handle people, how, know how to work with people, compared to the fresh PhD students. Yes, the doctor title is attractive, but not so if you think about the opportunity cost, uh, especially in the uh, in the corporate world where your compensations actually scale with the year your experience. So that's the second one with the uh, PhD. And third one, it's quite broad is that if the market is hot, if you receive a job offer for about 20 to 35% increase in salary, you probably don't want to settle on that. You don't want to take that. And how do you know when the market is hot? If you receive like job hunters offers, more than six of them, say within a year, and it's not necessarily in your country, it's from the nearby countries, that is an indication that market is hot. And if you have a particular companies or positions that are interested, you want to keep a close eye because chances are you might there might be some openings and that might be the defining moments of your long career. That's where you get your dream jobs easily. So those are the three major tips I I think will be relevant. Thanks for sharing those and good advice for listeners to make sure that we're we're counting the number of times in a year we've been approached by by a recruitment agency to help inform our salary negotiations. Well, when it's it's been brilliant to have you on the podcast. Thank you very much for your insights and reflections, and especially for recording this episode when I think it's yeah it's approaching ten o'clock at night in Malaysia. So that you know really appreciate you spending an evening talking to us. So. Yeah, another massive thank you. And we also wish you a very happy New Year celebration this weekend. Thank you, Marlenjo. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that was a fantastic interview with Wynne. And Q and I have decided to sit down together a day later to reflect on the episode and the things which really resonated with us. So Q, let's start with your reflections. What were your thoughts on the conversation? Yeah, you know, I, I really like the story about how he chanced upon ecology university. It's very serendipitous and it reminds me a lot of how my own paths were carved out. Um, but at the same time, you can, you know, you, you can tell that he's a very methodical person, the way he's planned his dissertation titles and how he's kind of forged his own career paths. Yeah, it's interesting. Your point on serendipity made me think about 
my own career journey as well because I started I started my career in, in the UK civil service in the Ministry for Housing and um, the only reason I got that job was because it, it was a week after the Brexit referendum and I had interned at the Ministry the, the year before so had it not been for the Brexit referendum that that relevant ministry might not have sort of panic recruited all of its interns so it got me reflecting on uh, also a really timely guest speaker talk that we had uh, in, in the CCMF cohort with Zoe Pedden who is a, a VC partner at Ananda Impact Ventures which is a yeah, VC firm she mentioned that she's from a working class family in Stockport and you know she she made a really powerful point I think where she said that if you're passionate and dedicated enough you find that you end up going interesting places in your career even if it's not what you what you totally expected which is something that Wynne talked about yesterday and it almost becomes a more fulfilling experience for that very reason because you discover things about yourself that you wouldn't have done so if you had taken a, a course that you, you you were always looking for um, so maybe something for, for us in the in the cohort uh, to think about did you have any other reflections on the on the interview? Yeah, I think obviously also because biodiversity is a very personal topic to me. Um, but I like how he painted the different approaches you could take to get into the space, even if you didn't have a background in conservation at all. But he he kind of said that, you know, if you wanted to approach you from consultancy or from carbon markets, there's so many different avenues that you could go into. And at the same time, he his advice was kind of going about it at a very general way, instead of trying to tackle a very specific area um, so that you can kind of broaden your opportunities a lot more. And this reminded me a lot of um, a talk that I had with my colleague a few years back when I was still deciding where I wanted to go um, after masters, etc. And she mentioned something about a T shape to me, where the horizontal bar of the T letter, it just represents your general capabilities. And the vertical then represents like a deep dive or deep expertise and a skill. And everyone's T shape is different. What could be deep expertise for someone? So you could be a professional at data analysis and machine learning. It could be a general capability for another person where you just kind of know the surface level of things and you understand it, but it's not something that you want to deep dive. And so the way he kind of approached his own career paths really got me thinking about this T-shape again and how I could make out what I want to deep dive into, what are my personal interests, and really how do I then make myself as flexible and adaptable as possible so that my my t-shirt is valuable i guess sounds like a great exercise to do maybe with a notepad and pen at some point when we're doing the job search to try and try and map out each of our t-shirts i really like that concept i also really liked how win mapped out the different fields of biodiversity work as you say, then the various ways students could could approach getting into those respective fields. And hopefully that serves as very tangible advice, uh, which those of you interested in biodiversity can bring forward. Um, but it leads me to say, Q, a massive thank you for organising that uh, that fantastic interview with Wynne and for being such a brilliant co-host. And uh, to listeners, thanks very much for joining us and looking forward to seeing you again for the next episode of Green Minds. Thank you, Q. Thank you, Lorenzo.